Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. This is our second episode. We are joined again by Wayne Pacelli. Wayne Pacelli is a personal hero of mine, um, former president and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States. He's the founder of this organization, AnimalWellnessAction.org, and its executive director, Marty Irby, is with us as well. Uh, today we're going to talk about legislative uh, goals uh, for the new year and other activity on the legislative front. That's the focus of the political animal, by the way, is what is happening with laws and lawmakers on the state, federal, local level that impact the well-being of our non-human animal uh, friends. Uh, you know, guys, before we started, I was sharing with uh, Marty the fact that I saw Jaws when I was 12 years old and was, as so many people were when that movie came out and are today when they watch it again, terrified of sharks. So as we reach a legislative debate and the passage of laws regarding sharks, it's it's kind of a hard PR sell, I would imagine. Am I right? Well, Joe, I, let me just say about Jaws and about sharks in general, I think it's a really important point you make. There are a couple reasons why our kind of affection and protection for sharks doesn't come easily. One is Jaws. I mean, it had a tremendous impact on the collective American psyche when it was when it was released in the 1970s. I mean, I grew up in New Haven, across Long Island Sound from you know from Long Island, uh, you know where that was supposed to be set, uh, that fictional account of of a beach community uh, off of New York and uh, this fearsome, you know, great white shark. And, you know, there wasn't a time that I didn't go in the ocean where I didn't think about a shark. And you can just multiply that by all the tens and tens of millions of people who saw Jaws then and subsequently. And then I think there's another psychological component to sharks. I mean, I think there is something built into us, a fear of predators. I see it with our interactions in some ways with wolves and with mountain lions, with grizzly bears, and in terms of the aquatic species with sharks. And I think, you know, reason and logic and a look at statistics can help us overcome it, but it gives us a little bit of a, of a slow start in thinking about protecting these animals. But it is quite amazing that there has been a bit of a a rehabilitation of the image of sharks and understanding about their role as apex predators in marine ecosystems. And then, you know, we've seen footage and pictures of people hacking off the fins of sharks just for that product and discarding the rest of the animal. So 95 or 98 percent of the animal is thrown away and we're killing them for sharks. And then when you see some of the statistics and the, the key statistic that has been and used and you know broadly supported by a number of scientists and and others who've studied sharks of 25 million to 75 million sharks killed a year in global um, oceans um, for the shark fin trade mainly destined for shark fin soup which in certain asian communities is considered kind of a 
a high-end uh, appetizer at weddings and other celebrations. So the Congress has had this shark finning issue. There are a number of bills that have been introduced in the last few years. And just recently, the House took up the Shark Fin Sales Elimination Act to ban in the United States any trade in shark fins. And it passed by more than a three to one margin, 310 yes votes in the House. The Senate passed in its Commerce Committee a companion bill some months ago. So we're really looking like some activity on shark fins may occur in this 116th Congress. Two follow-up questions. Is it not the case that the, the shark is not even killed before the fins are, are cut off? I mean, this is performed on live sharks, which are then returned, I, I believe, to kind of die a horrible death without their fins in the ocean. Is that correct? It can happen both ways. I mean, they may kill the shark and then cut off the fins and throw the, the lifeless carcass back in. Or if they, you know, capture the shark and, you know, pull, pull the animal on board, cut off the fins and, and not take the time to kill the animal, they could be uh, alive when they've lost their rudders, if you will. And they'll just, you know, float down to the bottom of the ocean uh, in all likelihood. So it can happen both ways. Obviously, you know, the more vivid representation, which is certainly true, is that the animal's mutilated and thrown back alive. Yeah. And then the second follow-up question is this. A lot of activity in this Congress. Why not last Congress? We're looking at an issue that's been around for years. This is nothing new. What's enabled this issue to finally make some progress? Well, Marty Irby and I have been working at this issue a long time on Capitol Hill. And what you're seeing this year is you have a number of bills that in prior Congresses really had been well socialized with lawmakers. Democrats and Republicans added their names as co-sponsors in extraordinary numbers. I mean, I think that animal welfare bills probably get more co-sponsors than any other category of bills in the Congress. Uh, you know, you've had the anti-soaring bill that had more than 300 co-sponsors, the Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture Act with more than 300 co-sponsors, shark finning approaching 300 co-sponsors, other bills with more than 200 co-sponsors. These bills have been around. And one of the problems you might say in hearing that is why didn't they pass before? I mean, not just because of the enormous number of co-sponsors, but because of the basic common sense of these issues. Who could be against creating an anti-cruelty statute? Who could be against the idea of stopping the mutilation of sharks or injuring the feet of Tennessee walking horses? That's because, frankly, you had some Republican committee chairmen in the 115th Congress, the prior Congress, who wouldn't let the bills move, even though, even though many members of their caucus, dozens of them, supported these bills. Marty, um, embellish on that. Why do these committee chairs throw up uh, such an obstacle? Well, I think specific instances, um, starting with the vice chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, then Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee is very tied to the pro-soaring coalition. Rob Bishop from Utah, who was head of natural resources, has pretty much just been terrible on animals across the board. That's the committee that had jurisdiction over the shark finning bill. Bob Goodlatte, as Wayne has previously mentioned from Virginia, who was pretty much against every animal protection reform out there. He was the chair of judiciary. So for whatever reason, these individuals just had something, a burr, that really stood out to them that they were going to either oppose this for specific reasons related to their district or people they knew, or that they just wanted to get at the animal protection folks. 
Yeah. So one one question I, I would have, not being as enmeshed in the political machinations as you guys are, is this about money? I mean, are there lobbyists getting to these guys? Is there Acme shark fin soup corporation somewhere that's slipping a few dollars to these committee chairs saying, hey, you know, we don't want this. Surely it has to be more than we're going to get at the animal people. Well, like a lot of things, Joe, it's multivalent. I think the money is a piece, but I think that it's it's more complex than that. And I think the issue is that you've got a couple of core Republican constituencies. Uh, you've got the farm lobby, which is, you know, generally oriented more toward the Republicans the gun lobby, more oriented toward the Republicans. And if anything kind of touches animals, those interest groups get agitated. They're always worried about the slippery slope. Mm -hmm. And anything that touches that, they get nervous. And I think they have trained some of their big allies to think that way. And a lot of these lawmakers have that skepticism toward animal issues. And then I think you overlay that with the Republican deregulation philosophy that has become kind of an orthodoxy within the party. And that deregulation philosophy is like, let's leave it up to the marketplace. Let's not encumber freedom. You know, there are a lot of things that have a lot of appeal to a lot of Republicans. You know, people are worried about overburdensome regulations. But when it comes to animals, I mean, these are rules and restrictions that the government is placing upon corporate and individual behavior, but it's warranted because of the asymmetrical relationship between humans and animals. I mean, we hold all the cards over these animals and a small number of people can do terrible damage to animals, whether it's a small number of dog fighters or cockfighters or shark finners or horse soaring people. You know, one might call that a regulation or a rule or a limitation on freedom, but you're damn right. It should be a limitation on their freedom. They shouldn't be able to hurt animals in this way. And this is the function of government in some ways is to protect the most vulnerable among us, especially from people who want to profit or engage in simple gratuitous cruelty. So I think those factors are driving some of this behavior and I think some of these people just have a bit of a mean streak toward animals. I, I just have to say it. I mean, Bob Goodlatte, um, you know, he's gone from the Congress. That's a good thing for animal welfare in the United States. Rob Bishop is just not the congressman from Utah, who's now the ranking Republican on the committee. He's never really shown any affinity for even the most basic mainstream animal welfare reforms. It's perplexing to the average citizen. I mean, who would be against stopping base cruelty. And, you know, in fairness, I'm sure he's, you know, he's voted on a couple of things our way through the years, but boy, it's a small list uh, of bills that he has supported. Marty, um, I think we have a pretty astute audience, uh, but talk a little bit about the role of the committee chair in the legislative process. What gives them so much power? Well, the committee chairs, in each instance, basically control what comes up for hearing in the committee, what comes up for a markup, which is where they discuss the bill and make potential changes to a bill before releasing it to be moved to the House floor for a vote. Many of the committee chairs do take direction from the Speaker of the House or the leader of their party, but for the most part, it is their decision on whether they allow a bill to move forward or not. And Quite honestly, my fellow Republicans um, have just not had the intestinal fortitude to stand up for animals 
and they've kowtowed to folks like Marsha Blackburn and others who may be on their committee that don't want to see something move. So they just they just shut it down, and that uh, prevents the legislative body writ large from having an opportunity to vote on it, is what you're saying. That's right. And one thing we've been fortunate to have this year is this new rule that's been implemented that if you reach 290 co-sponsors, which represents two-thirds of the House, then the bill would avert the committee process and move to the House floor for a vote. So that's what we did with the PAST Act. Um, we had hit, as Wayne said, over 300 with the PACT Act, and I'm sure we'll see more of that. It's a new mechanism to prevent these committee chairs from being able to hold something up. And that, that's yeah, interesting. This is really important. No, I was just going to say Marty's point is really relevant. And for our listeners, I really want to underscore this, that the new Congress in the 116th, from the first session of a two-year Congress, there was a move at the very beginning of the Congress by lawmakers from both parties. They were members of what's called the Problem Solvers Caucus. And these are Democrats and Republicans, a small number of them, 40 or 50 or so, who have said, listen, we have too much dysfunction in Washington and we have too few votes on issues. You have a wide number of issues on left and right subjects, center subjects that have not come up for debate and discussion. And this is unfair. You're having too few lawmakers, a few well-placed committee chairs deciding what comes up. And some of the leaders, the Speaker of the House, whoever, whether it's Democrat or Republican, you know, haven't allowed these issues to come up either and, and said to the committee chairs, hey, this bill has 300 co-sponsors. Let's have a debate on it. You vote however you want, but let's let the body decide. So Congressman Josh Gottheimer from northern New Jersey and Tom Reed from western New York lead the Problem Solvers Caucus. And they push for this. And several of the Democrats said hey, we may not vote for you, Nancy Pelosi, when we're going to have the vote for speaker if you don't have this rule. And they convinced the leadership, Pelosi and Steny Hoyer, who's the majority leader, James Clyburn, the majority whip, and the majority adopted this new rule that if an issue gets 290 co-sponsors, which is two-thirds plus of the House, that it automatically goes to the floor. It bypasses the committee of jurisdiction or committees of jurisdiction and gets a vote. That has been really important for animal protection because remember, we had the PAST Act that got more than 300 co-sponsors, the PACT Act, the federal anti-cruelty bill, and shark finning was heading toward that number. And the, the chairman of that committee, Raul Grijalva from Arizona, is a big supporter of animal welfare, animal protection. He didn't need to get there. But if we had had a stubborn-minded committee chair, that rule would have, would have been triggered and we could have got the shark finning bill to the floor through that channel also. So if I want to call my uh, congressman, Mr. John Yarmouth, you don't have to vote for this, but would you sponsor it just so that it could come to a larger vote? Is that likely to be an effective strategy? Will people sponsor something even if they end up not voting for it? I don't think so. I've not heard of too many lawmakers uh, doing that. Typically, if they co-sponsor a bill, they're basically publicly declaring that they support the concept. Now, they could gotcha. explain it and say, hey, we're going to do it just to give a chance. But Marty probably knows better than I how many um, bills have gotten to that 290 threshold. It's probably only about a dozen. I think in the House, we've had more than 5,000 bills introduced or something close to that. And um, only a dozen, it's pretty rarefied terrain. And 
most lawmakers co-sponsor a bill if they've examined it and they support the concept and the policy reform. Yeah, there are very few bills. I think uh, Wayne's right. It's a little less than a dozen or so that have met that threshold, which is a tiny percentage of the thousands of bills that have been introduced. So uh, you're not likely to see that happen. But there have been instances where we had, I think, eight or 10 people that co-sponsored the PAST Act that then voted against the bill. So they did help us get to the 290 mark. And for whatever reason, whether it be the leadership directed them to do so, or they had something come up that uh, was cause for concern on their end, they have uh, gone the opposite way. That doesn't look very good to their constituents. So what it looks like to me is that they were trying to appease their constituents to get them off their back. And then when it came down to the, the grind, and the vote that they backed up and didn't support their position. Yeah. So one way, though, that this rule can be employed by folks, though, is uh, if you're of a belief or if you know that your representative is going to vote for it or would vote for it, uh, you can nonetheless ask uh, that representative to be a sponsor to help get it to the point where it automatically comes up for a vote. So uh, that is one application of this rule when it comes to grassroots advocacy, correct, John? Uh, I know uh, uh, this is something pl- you're planning on voting for. Um, can I ask you to go ahead and put your name on as a sponsor to make sure that it gets up for a vote? Is that an effective potentially strategy? Yes, I, I think it is. And, you know, the sponsors are typically the lawmakers who introduce the bill, not the co-sponsors are the, are the lawmakers who add their names. Yeah. And and the I do think it's it's a good strategy, but Really, as Marty said, and and I said um, uh, as well, rarely is it a case that a bill gets this number of co-sponsors. But if you can get 80, 100, 150, 170 co-sponsors, that itself is also a great show of strength, especially if it's bipartisan. And and we shouldn't need to get 290 co-sponsors on these bills to move them. The committee chairs should be taking up animal welfare issues because these are good policies for the United States of America and because typically animal cruelty is linked to other um, bad social instincts, you know, whether it's animal fighting and other criminal activity or whether it's factory farming and public health issues and the overuse of antibiotics. I mean, when people are bad to animals, there are often other consequences. And those are good things to address. And the United States Congress can walk and chew gum. They can do the budget issues and the appropriations issues, and they can do their their investigations, and they can look at health care policy and a wide range of issues. That's why they have a lot of committees. And you take the issues that are of good sound policy and that have attracted a lot of support, and then you take them up and you have a vote and you have rules that are built to kind of restrict time so that the, that the body can then organize itself and conduct a lot of things. For too long, animal issues were at the bottom of the list. They were not treated as seriously as other subjects uh, have been. And then you had this, this set of Republican lawmakers that were blocking solid common sense bills that had the support of the American people and the support of a tremendous number of lawmakers of both parties and now with the Democrats in charge, we're seeing some of that correcting. We're seeing some of the 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 water that's built up behind the dam uh, allowed to flow out. That release is a good thing for our country. It's a good thing for policy. 
Now, of course, we have to deal with the U.S. Senate, which it's, itself is a chamber that's designed to slow the progress of legislation. And the rules there really empower a minority of senators uh, to, to thwart legislation. We're very fortunate that we had a really strong set of authors on the PACT Act, the Preventing Animal Cruelty and Torture Act, Pat Toomey and Dick Blumenthal. They worked within their caucuses to socialize the PACT Act, and we passed it through the Senate. But now we have a couple of bills that are waiting, like the PAST Act, which is the anti-horse soaring bill, and now shark finning, waiting for action in the Senate. And that's why Marty and I and the rest of the team at Animal Wellness Action will be concentrating a lot of our energy on the Senate in the coming months to get these bills through both chambers. Marty, do you, do you like your odds? Well, I think the shark finning bill has a really great chance of getting through. It's already made it through the committee process on the Senate side. We definitely have some challenges with the PAST Act because our opposition are two very vocal senators from Tennessee, and there's a lot of uh, opposition where people are soaring horses in Kentucky. So we definitely have an uphill battle there, but we do know that the bill is very, very well socialized, and we have... 50 co-sponsors on the Senate bill, which represents one half of the Senate. We had as many as 60 at one time. I do think we'll probably get back close to that 60 mark uh, before the Congress is over. So uh, we we definitely have a shot at moving some things, but there's an uphill battle on others. Yeah, Joe, it shouldn't be a crazy shouldn't be a crazy idea to allow a vote on an issue. You know, if if the senators from Tennessee or you know other states that that have somehow been bamboozled to think that this is not an abusive behavior, uh, that the industry is taking care of it. If they want to make their arguments, make your arguments on the floor. You know, marshal your evidence, um, advance your rational arguments, and have a debate. You know, it's really difficult to get 100 people to agree coming from all parts of the country um, and with both political parties. I don't think the standard should be unanimity. We achieve that on PACT. But we shouldn't have to have unanimity on the Senate. We should be able to have debates on issues and let the chips fall where they may. That helps us sometimes. It may hurt us in other cases. But I'm for having the Senate become an actual deliberative body. You know, it used to be called the greatest deliberative body in the world. I mean, that's a farce now. We don't allow much to be uh, considered and debated in the Senate. And it, you know, it's been called a graveyard by uh, a lot of people, and we should be having more robust discussion and debate on issues that are of importance to the American people, including animal protection. You know, it almost sounds democratic, uh, Wayne, for that to happen and for the votes to occur. It's, it's kind of, kind of, crazy kind of notion. Uh, what a crazy wacky. notion. You, 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 yeah. wacky people. What do you expect? So, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's representative government, right? I mean, we're supposed to debate the issues. And this is why we don't have 330 million people voting. You elect people and you're supposed to have debate. So, yeah. Yeah. That, well, yeah. I'm it, kidding it's myself. A, well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, because if my representative, my vicar in that body is unable to vote, then in essence, and very logically so, my voice is being quashed as well. And I think if people understood that, uh, maybe they, they would feel more indignant at some of these subtler things. Now, 
Now, that, that is a great deal of minutiae to ask people to understand. Uh, I would think, no knock against their intelligence, but gosh, you know, people are busy. And to understand that level of detail, uh, I think it takes time and, and resources that not everyone has. But yeah, that's right. If, if my representative, John Yarmouth, can't vote on something because some committee chair is holding on to it, then in essence, I don't get to vote on it. And my voice is squelched. So, so, so gosh, I'm kind of angry now. I'm a little, I'm, I'm more upset than I was at the beginning of this podcast, Wayne and Marty. Thanks. Thank you. Well, I, I will add a, a point of encouragement um, because this will be out on another podcast with Horsemanship Radio that Priscilla Presley and I uh, recorded a few weeks ago. Um, as it relates to the PAST Act, the committee of the chair of jurisdiction is Senator Roger Wicker from Mississippi. His hometown is Tupelo, and that was Elvis Presley's hometown. And as you know, Priscilla has been a tireless advocate on that issue and worked with us. And so there is hope. All right. Thanks, guys. And, and Marty, before I let you go, I know equine issues are a particular love and specialty of yours. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, for many years, I lived so close to Churchill Downs, I could hear the call on race days from my backyard. My Facebook stream is blowing up over the last couple of days with news regarding uh, horse racing. Of course, the, the incredible number of racetrack horse deaths in California, news of the commission. Uh, What's going on? Uh, give me the lowdown from your perspective. That's a great question, Joe. Well, there's so many horses dying on the track every day in this country. They're dying at Churchill Downs. They're dying at Keeneland in Lexington, California, Belmont in New York. And it's a huge problem. It's probably gotten more attention from the president ever has this year. But we're working to try to pass the Horse Racing Integrity Act that would end doping. It's sponsored by Andy Barr from Kentucky, along with Paul Tonko from New York in the House. Kirsten Gillibrand and Martha McSally in the U.S. Senate, and we see a lot of momentum, 203 or four, I believe, co-sponsors in the House now, and 10 in the Senate. Senator Dianne Feinstein from California just joined on, so we're very encouraged that we can help create a uniform system for drug testing and a national set of rules to stop all of these problems, because it's just senseless. Seeing horses dying on the track for people's entertainment is just sickening. You know, I know it seems like the calendar turns January 2 and people are starting their derby countdowns. Uh, so I know that um, horse racing, the world of it and much of the world in general turns to Louisville as, as May approaches. So no doubt we'll talk a lot more uh, about that. Thank you so much for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. I've been your host, Joseph Grove. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org to find out about all of our legislative efforts, subscribe to our newsletters, and link up with our social media channels. Want to subscribe to this podcast? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and we'll be back real soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.